Good evening, everybody. We're, we're glad that you're here, and I'm thankful that you all made it to the last session. This is chapters 12 and 13. Yeah! <laughs> they that endure to the end shall be faithful to send off. <laughs> let's, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your blessings and mercies. We've been together here week after week for a long time. And now as we conclude this book tonight, we pray that the blessings of the book will go with us and that we may learn the lessons that you have for us and internalize them, apply them to our lives. Now tonight, as we open your word together, we pray that the Spirit of God will be in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But we left off in chapter 11, we ran into a whole group of heroes of faith. And as we, we observed that, we kind of wondered how some of these characters got into it. I mean, you get Jephthah, you get Samson, and some of these others who had definite character problems. But yet, they overcame. And because they overcame their character defects, the Lord bless them. As we begin the 12th chapter, it begins with the word therefore. Now, what do we say about the word therefore? Okay, when you see therefore, it's, it's logically picking up or, or completing the thought that was previously mentioned. And so we find that chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 4, are actually a continuation or uh, an expansion of what he talked about in chapter 11. Now, you remember that we said that the chapters and verses are not divinely inspired. The original text didn't have chapter and verses. That's why Paul will say, it says somewhere in the scriptures and he'll quote something. And that's because he couldn't give you chapter and verse. They didn't have them. Okay, they were added later on. But as we look at this, he in verse 1, it says... This is the old King James. Instead of therefore, it says wherefore. Basically the same thing. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Patience means steadfastness. In plain words, seeing how these people were victorious by hanging in there by faith to be steadfast and let us run together with patience the race set before us. You will find that very frequently Paul refers to a race. In his time, the Olympics were a big thing. And during that time period, they, they had different kinds of competitions. And an athlete, it, won't, it doesn't matter who came in third, it's who came in first that counted. He's the one that received the, the laurel crown of victory. And he plays on this in several parts of the scriptures. And also, they had to put aside everything that would cause a drag to them. Many of the athletes in the Olympics, they would run naked. And they would put uh, oil or ointment or grease on their bodies to reduce the wind 
you know, uh, drag on them, the, the friction, because they wanted to make it right to the end first. Of course, in those days, like the heathen, if they did that, they would be worshipped as a god, too. So, Paul plays on this. Look at verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, now notice, he calls Jesus two things here. He says that he's the author of our faith. In plain words, he's the one that devised the plan of salvation. You know, that's kind of strange because in the Garden of Eden, you're saying, Lord, how, how do I get into this situation? How do I get out of this thing? You know, I don't like the idea of dying. Well, he's the one that devised it. But he's the finisher of our faith. He's the one that completed it. And he's the one that will be with us to the very end. He finished his race. He's going to help us to finish our race to the end. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Remember the word steadfast? Endure the cross. Despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because he was victorious, he sits in the throne as our high priest. He sits on the throne as the Son of God. It reigns. And we are given the, the uh, privilege of reigning with him, sitting on the throne with him. So in reality, he makes us, uh, the word God simply means judge. He makes us the judge over the angels. Even in the, uh, the judgment, we get to look over the books and we begin, we, we see why Satan didn't make it. And we have a part in that judgment process. And so we find that in that sense, he makes us gods. Because we have finished the race and endured. It's a gift that he gives to us. It's not because there's anything lying about us. It's because we have completed the race. Look at verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. He's, uh, in verse 3, when we're discouraged and we're weary with the trials of life, we should recall that Jesus had a rougher than we did. Oh, yeah. But he did not quit or give up. No, neither should we. Winston Churchill, during the Second World War, when the British people were suffering under the bombs and the V-2 rockets coming into England, he got on the radio and he made a statement that really encouraged the British people to hold fast. He said, we will never you know, and his old bulldog voice, never give up. And this is what God wants. He wants us to be bulldogs. No matter what the devil throws at you, he can discourage you. Uh, you know, you can have marital problems, you can have problems with your kids, you can have problems with finances, but don't give up the faith. That's what he's saying. He's talking to a group of people who were discouraged and ready to give up. And you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see a brother or sister who's lagging, that maybe things are coming their way that are kind of overpowering, instead of being critical of them, 
say, look, let me help you. Hang in there. I'll do what I can to assist you. Don't give up. He that endures to the end shall be saved. That theme keeps coming back. Mary, I can't help but think of your book. I can't help but think of your book. Mary had a lot of health problems, went through a lot of trials, but bless your heart, you didn't give up. Matter of fact, you still haven't given up. She's still hanging in there. And this is what he's saying. Yours was a physical battle, but what he's saying here is in our spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual warfare. Don't give up. That's what the devil's trying to get you to do. He didn't want Jesus to die and go to that grave because he was afraid Jesus would come out. What he really wanted to do was to get Jesus to quit and go back. <clears throat> he, that's why he said, he saved everybody else, let him save himself. But Jesus hung in there to the very end. Notice what it says in verse 4. He had not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, oh, by the way, last week when we were talking about Enoch, I mentioned that Enoch was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I meant Elijah was. Both Enoch and Elijah went to heaven without seeing death. But I know the difference. I just moved. Okay? So I want to correct that for the sake of the uh, recording so that whoever's listening knows that I really do know the difference. Alright, notice here. It says, we have not yet resisted unto blood. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was having such a spiritual battle. What did he do? He sweat. Great drops of, as it were, great drops of blood. You know, I wonder how many of us, if we're trying to overcome a sin or a shortcoming, have we really held out until blood to gain that victory? I can't help it, I got a sweet tooth. Goes all the way down, wraps around the sole of my shoe, and if you go to pull it, you know, it tears you apart to try to pull it out. But you know, I know I gotta give that up. I've gotta surrender that to the Lord. But I'll be honest with you, I haven't sweat blood over it yet. But we've gotta remember no matter what the habit is. If we don't overcome it, it will overcome us, you see, in the time of testing and trial. And this is what he's saying. If we really understood what it means and how offensive sin is to God, we would, we would put a great more effort in trying to overcome sin. Now notice, in verses 5 through 24, the focus has changed. I said that those first four verses really tag along with chapter 11. Now when we get into verse 5, the theme seems to change a little bit. Here he exhorts us to endure the corrections of a chastening God. If God sometimes will bring us to a point where we're confronted with our sin. And, you know, he doesn't... Uh, we don't like to be corrected. Do you like to be corrected? Do you like to be spanked? I don't think so. And 
our kitchen. Like I said, when my kids were young, I said to my older son, who did something wrong, I had to get to the seat of the problem. And I said, I want you to know this hurts me more than it does you. Which is all. You try to tell a kid that. <laughs> I mean, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, and I said, you know, I correct you because I love you. And he said to me, boy, I hate to see what you do with the <laughs> So we see that this is our human reasoning. Sometimes God has to put us in situations where our sin confronts us and we have to make decisions. Whether we're going to go with the Lord or go with our own self-will. And notice what he says in verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortations which speaketh unto you as unto children. Notice how he likes to keep it. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Whether you're reading the Bible, and do you notice that the Bible, sometimes it goes to meddling. I mean, it's all right if it points out your sins, but what starts pointing out on mine, hey, he's, he's meddling now. And it, he mentions here that when he's, we, we really need to ask the Lord to meddle with us, to point out our sins. And then he's going to ask us to do something about it. He's going to ask us to correct it. That's why the scriptures... If you really want to know the will of the Lord, you better be willing to accept it if he really shows it to you. You know, you should never pray, Lord, show me my character. Show me what I need to overcome. You know, that's a dangerous prayer because he'll do it. And then once he does it, what are you going to do about it? You see? You're inviting him to show you something that you better have the guts to stand up to. And it says in verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. I know an individual who said to me, Oh, I'm having such a rough time, God hates me. God is working against me. No, you're working against God. God is bringing you to this point to teach you something, to tell you something. Maybe you're not listening. Remember when we talked about the warnings of the word? One was to listen to what God is saying. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now that sounds like, you know, he takes a can of nine tails and he rips the flesh off of him. That isn't really what it's saying, although that's what the language means. But sometimes, the Lord has to take us through some rough and tumble experiences just to wake us up. When you're flat on your back, that's when you start looking up, right? Right. And sometimes we have to be flat on our back before we start looking up to God. We're too busy looking down and looking out. Look at verse 7. If we endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chases not? A father's job is to correct the family. A father's job, a true father's job, is to keep things in line. But if the father isn't doing his job and the kids are running all over getting in talk out of trouble, that's inviting disaster. And so God deals with us as he would with the son. Look at verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, 
makers, then are ye bastards and not sons. What does that mean? The word bastard is an old Anglo-Saxon English word that means an illegitimate child, right? So it's saying that we are not true sons of God if we don't let God correct us. We actually bring shame to the cause of God because as Christians, we are to represent his character. But instead of representing his character, if we're representing the character of Satan and we claim to be Christians, that's a black mark on his name, isn't it? I've told my kids from the time they were small, the only heritage I can give you, don't expect to inherit a lot of money. You might get my bills, but don't expect to get a lot of money when I go. There's only two things I can leave you. One is my God. And the other is your family name. And uphold that family name. Because it represents the people who once bore it. And here, when, when we are called Christians, that means that we are in the family of Christ. And we are representing the character of the people who bear that name as well as the founder of that name. And this is what he is telling us here. If we are truly sons and daughters of God, we will reflect the character of our heavenly parent. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us. I assume we've all had fathers at one point or another in life. Okay? And, you know, whether they remained in that home or they didn't. But nonetheless, what fathers you might have had or did have, there were times when he may have had to correct you. If it's a single, you know, single parent home, it had to be mom that corrected you. But somebody had to correct you. If they didn't, you'd be spoiled brats, getting into all kinds of trouble. And it says, uh, furthermore, we have had fathers of the flesh which corrected us, and we, we give them reverence, we respect them, we honor them for teaching us to walk in straight and narrow. Shall we not much uh, rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? He's the author of all that's good. He knows what's right and what's wrong. And we should follow him. For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after our own pleasure. After their own pleasure. Language, the direction they wanted to go. They molded us in that direction. But he, for our profit, it wasn't for their good name that they did they did it for their good name. He does it for his good name. He does it for us to take that name. That we might be partakers of his holiness. That we may develop his character. Let's look at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. I don't like getting spanked. I don't like getting spanked. Jesus didn't like nails and crosses. But yet, it was to the perfection of his character. We talked about that before. It was to perfect him so that he could understand what it's like to be human and that he could be a better high priest for us. 
And because the Father had never been human, the Holy Spirit had never been human, but only the, the Savior was. And he understood what it was like to be human. He could explain our situation better. And so we find that even Jesus didn't like having to go to the cross, but it was necessary to perfect him for his role. Nevertheless, afterwards, he yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Those who accept it and apply it. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. What's that say? Those who are discouraged, those who are ready to give up, you know, when you discourage you, you feel like you're just going to crumble. Those who are discouraged, those who are weak, those who are ready to quit, it says that we are to lift up their hands. We're to give them a hand up. Okay? Encourage them. Look at verse 13. And make straight path for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. We are to walk in the straight and narrow that, that God reveals to us. Verse 14. Follow peace with all men in, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now notice, follow peace with all men. What's this say? It says, be a good neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There are those who turn that around and say, do unto others before they do it unto you. Well, if it's good, that's great. But it doesn't mean get even. What it's saying is, be at peace with people. Try to make things right with our fellow men. And it says, without which no man shall see the Lord. The Lord is not going to take quarrelsome people into the kingdom. Alright, look at verse 15. It says, looking diligently. Now what does that mean? That takes some effort, doesn't it? It's not a passive thing, it's an active thing. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up troubles you, and whereby many are defiled. You know, too often disappointment will lead to resentment. Resentment will lead to bitterness. Bitterness is a cancer. Bitterness, if you're not careful, it will spoil you. It will defile you and your attitudes. And before you know it, you'll miss out on many blessings and you'll cause a lot of trouble. So we need to be careful that we don't become resentful of disappointments. We just need to lay them before the Lord and ask Him to make something good come out of it and to change our hearts that we don't become bitter. Look at verse 28. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved let us have, have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Godly respect, respecting God and His will. Notice that it's talking at how do we please God? By obeying Him, keeping His commandments. But notice it's connected with grace. Oftentimes we say, well, we're saved by faith. That's true. But in reality, we are saved by grace because 
Grace is a gift from God. He, God is the one who takes the initiative to give you grace. And why? Because we are doing all that's expected of us. We are believing his promises and we are trusting him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were headed for the fiery flames, they said, Lord, our God can deliver us. I know he can. He can deliver us from those flames. But even if he doesn't choose to do that, we're still not going to bow down to your image. We're going to go through the flames if we have to. And because they had faith in God, by God's grace, he delivered them from that fiery furnace. But we need the kind of faith that even if things don't work out the way we would like them to, we will believe that God is working out for our best good. And we will trust him and not throw in the sponge. You see, this is what he's referring to. Look at 12.16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, should we sell the, the uh, heritage that we have before us? Should we sell the promise? Shall we sell our salvation for appetite? Some people, you know, they'll sell their salvation for cocaine. Or um, because they just love certain foods and they can't get along with them. It's interesting how many times God connects appetite and uh, food with some of these illustrations. Could it be telling us maybe that it was appetite and food that got Eve in trouble? Or her attitude towards it, I should say. Could it be that our attitude toward food may be a stumbling block in our salvation? So I can't give up pork. I can't give up my ham sandwich. You're silly salvation for that. You know, when Judas sold Jesus, he was so much into trying to make a profit that he sold Jesus for the price of a slave. At that time, what he sold Jesus for, if I remember correctly, was the $12.50. Is that all the Savior means to you, is $12.50? You see, we need to be careful that we don't sell our birthright, the promises of God, for something simple. And notice it says that Esau was a fornicator. Now, a fornicator is a sexually immoral person. And he was a profane person. Now, when it says profane, that just means he was a, uh, he was a secularist. Would that be fair to say? He was living a secular life. He was living an immoral life. And as a result, he lost his birthright. And Many of us, unfortunately, say, oh, I just can't get along without this or that. What are we selling our heritage for? Look at 12, 17. For ye know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Why? Because he didn't have faith in the Lord. Not the kind of faith that overcomes. For he found no place for repentance. God wanted him to repent. Though he sought it carefully with tears, 
when Esau realized what he was losing, he started to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. Was he really sorry? But did he get his hand caught in the cookie jar? I think I used the illustration at one time when I was principal of the academy that he did something, and I gave him the opportunity to come to me and to tell me what happened and what was going on. And uh, he didn't do it. I had to track it down and catch it. Then he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry because I gave you the chance to repent. Yeah, but I said I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to report you to the police. And he said, you call yourself a Christian. Christians are supposed to forgive people. He wasn't really sorry. He was sorry he got caught. You see. And we've got to be careful that we don't have that same attitude. Everybody we catch when they're caught is, if we're really repenting, is before we get caught. Look at verse 18. For we have not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Where, where was there a mountain burning with fire and blackness, darkness, and clouds, and all kinds of normal storm and everything? Yeah. Moses, when he went up to talk with God in the Ten Commandments. Exactly. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, when the commandments were given. God had to get their attention. So he put on a 4th of July fireworks. You see, just to get their attention, these slaves. He had to scare the gizzard out of them. Just so that they would pay attention. You know, sometimes the Lord has to hit you over the head with a club to get your attention. Do you ever notice that? Because we're not paying attention. And he says, we're not coming to the mountain like he did with Moses. They had to build a fence around it. Any animal that crossed that fence would die. And any person that crossed it would. And verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They actually, they actually told Moses, please stop, tell God to stop talking to us, it scares us. As a matter of fact, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. And they were scared to death. I think I probably would be told. You know, he lights up like the outside or something. But he came down and his face was glowing. So what did Moses have to do? He put a bag over his head. So that he would scare the people. Because he had been in the presence of the Lord and had lighted his whole radiance. My friends, when you come into an experience with the Lord, you won't have to tell people you're a Christian. <laughs> that radiation, that radiance of God's love, that and of his glory, will make a difference in your countenance. And the way you express yourself, you know, You'll be different somehow. Look at verse 20. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast should touch the mountain, it shall be stoned and thrust through with the dark. If that were to throw spirit, 
For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, now this is the lambs and the animals that were killed for the sanctuary, by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Now notice, it says that they aren't burned inside of the sanctuary, they're burned outside of the sanctuary. Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, right? But was Jesus put to death in heaven? No. Uh -uh. He was put to death outside the sanctuary on the earth. You see. The very fact that the animal had to be killed outside of the sanctuary that blood brought in is symbolic that Christ would be put to death on the earth, but that blood that he shed would be applied in the heavenly sanctuary for our salvation. Notice 21, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Even Moses was quaking before the presence of the Lord. Look at uh, 12, 22. And you know, I don't blame him. I mean, here he is going before God, and sin cannot come into the presence of God because my God is a consuming fire to the wicked, right? Right. Moses would have been burned up. And Moses... He wanted to be sure his sins were forgiven. And when he came before the presence of the Lord, I imagine he was thinking, oh, did I forget this or did I forget that? You know, God's people in the last days, we need to be asking ourselves before the judgment uh, take comes to our name. Are my sins forgiven? Have I laid them at the feet of Jesus? Am I able to come before the Lord? You can through Jesus. But he wants, Jesus wants us to overcome them so he can present them before the Lord that's covered with his blood. Now notice, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Now he's not talking about earth here. He's not talking about the earthly uh, Jerusalem. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. When he says Mount Zion, Mount Zion was, in Jerusalem, was where David's city was. And that's where, that was the capital of his, his secular government. And here we find the spiritual David. When it refers to Mount Zion, it's talking about the heavenly government of God. And notice we're becoming in before angels as well. 12.23 says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Just men made perfect. Hmm. What is a just man? One who is doing mercy. One who is walking with God. There are just men in heaven. Name three of them for me. Moses, Elijah, Enoch, and there were a group of them that went up with Jesus at his ascension. You see, these are just men who were made perfect. And you know, God's people who are resurrected and go with him, they will be justified. Why? Because their sins are forgiven them. Notice it says to the general assembly of the church. 
They're having a general conference meeting here, okay? And it says the church of the firstborn. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of the grave. Not because he came out of the grave before Lazarus, but he was the most important of anybody who ever came out of the grave. It's a title of eminence, and which are written in heaven. This is the book of life he's referring to here. Notice in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. What's a mediator? He's a go-between. He's the one that uh, negotiates the peace treaty between two people, right? Or two organizations or whatever. It was Christ who mediated or brought about the peace treaty between God the Father, against whom we have offended, and humanity, who are the offenders. He's the one that worked out the legalities of the plan of salvation. And don't think for a moment that the plan of salvation does not have a legal aspect. It's very organized, and there is a legal process that God goes through just like on earth. We have a court system that is very organized and different steps to it. It's patterned after the example of the scriptures. And it says he's the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now notice he goes back to righteous Abel. Abel wasn't on the earth very long, but he set a good example in that he brought before the Lord an acceptable offering. And what was that? It was the sacrifice lamb. Abel was showing us righteousness by faith. This is what this is talking about. It's a message of righteousness by faith. And then in verse 25 to 29, the tail end of chapter 12, he gives us our fifth warning. Now remember I said there were five warnings, major warnings in the book of uh, Hebrews, anybody remember what they all were? I don't think so. Okay, number one we found in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, and that was the danger of neglect or drifting away. Don't neglect the Word of God, don't neglect prayer, don't neglect church or worship, or else you'll find yourself drifting away and you'll be the last to notice it. And then the second one, is in Hebrews 3, 7 through 18. And this is the danger of hardening your heart. In plain words, you're saying no to God when you should be saying yes. Then the third one, Hebrews 5, 1 through 14. This was the danger of dullness of hearing. In plain words, when, when we should be teaching others the way of salvation, we ourselves need to know. We have to learn it all over again because we're immature. Why? Because we're not listening. And sometimes God has to hit us over the head with a club to get our attention. Okay? And then, how many times, you know, raising your kids, you say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Well, you have to say, okay, go ahead. And they suffer the consequences. And then they say, well, why didn't you tell me? I told you, but you weren't listening. You say, and then Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, was the danger of drawing back, in plain words, backsliding, drawing back from the will of God. 
It's going back to the old ways when we should be pressing forward. And then this one, the last one, the fifth one, Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. And here he says, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. When God wants you to do something, he impresses you. This is what you should do. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. Don't refuse him your service. If God impresses you that you should speak a kind word or you should help a person, and you say, well, those poor people, we're going to put all part of grief. I really hope somebody helps them. What are you? Why don't you speak an encouraging word? In other words, extend yourself. For if they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. If God is speaking to us from heaven to do something, uh, we need to be careful we don't find ourselves in the same boat as those who listened to Jesus' sermon on the mount and then turned away. There were those who look to Jesus coming in on the donkey and say, Hosanna to the son of David. Yay, he's the Messiah. He's the king of glory. And when he fulfilled their expectation, they said, crucify him, crucify him. We need to be careful that we don't turn on him. God wants us to not refuse him his service. If he wants you to do something, do it. Hebrews 12, 26. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, also but heaven. When the voice of God speaks, the whole earth will quiver. The, there will be an earthquake like we haven't seen before. Even the, the sky will part and roll up like a scroll, it tells us. It sounds like the voice of many waters. It echoes through the heavens. And I don't know if he's a baritone, a bass, a soprano, an alto, a lion. He may be a four-part harmony. You know? But when he speaks, his voice rolls along. And it shakes anything his way. And you know, at these end times, there's going to be a spiritual shaking. Because when the voice of God, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people, we're going to be faced with having to stand for the truth or not. And there will be some people who will be shaken out of the church. And there will be other people who will be shaken in to take their place. Let no man steal your crown. I think that the time of shaking is already in process. Have you noticed the bad are getting better and the good are getting more serious? And there are many who are in the church thinking they're all set for the kingdom. They're saying, Lord Jesus, come. Well, in reality, if, if you're asking Jesus to come and you're not living the way he wants you to, uh, you can be in trouble. And so we're faced with conflict. Are we going to live the way he wants us to live or are we not? And those who are not sincere will be shaken out. But there are people out there who haven't heard the gospel yet. And when they come to an understanding of truth, 
they will grasp onto it, and the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them. So we need to keep that in mind. Notice what it says in verse 27. And this word, which one, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain, in plan which be steadfast. If your faith is built on sand, you're going to be shaken out of place. If your faith is built on other people, you're going to be disillusioned. I got news for you. Those other people are sinners too. Those other people are just as selfish as you are. And if you build your faith on them, they are going to disappoint you. And guess what? You're going to pass on the paper. You're going to disappoint somebody else. Remember I said before, you're never saved alone and you're never lost alone. You will influence somebody else. And we find here that those things, those people whose faith is not solid, they will be shaken out. And others may learn the lesson from it and stand firm. Anything that can be shaken will be shaken, but those things that are committed to Christ will remain firm. Because they're built on the rock, not on the sand. And the chapter 12 ends with these words. For our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire in a couple of ways. Number one, when we come into the presence of the Lord, He burns out the sin within us. The Holy Spirit burns out the sin within us. He changes us. He accepts you the way you are, but He never leaves you the way you are. He changes you, and those things you once cherished, you don't cherish anymore. And vice versa. And so, spiritually, the Holy Spirit is a consuming fire that will burn out those sinful things that we enjoy. But if we don't accept His pleadings, then when we come into the presence of the brightness of God's glory will burn us up. If you look at it in Ezekiel, it talks about Satan. It says that he would be burned inside out. Why? That's where, in your heart, in your mind, is where your, your sinful traits are. And we find that my God is a consuming fire to the wicked, just like it was this evening before. And so chapter 12 really leaves this warning of people not to refuse God is due service, but rather by faith to continue on. And with that, we move into chapter 13. And in chapter 13, Paul now gives us counsel, knowing these things are going to happen. What kind of men and women are we to be? Shouldn't we reflect the character of God, which is love? But how do we do it? in a world without us. This is where the rubber meets the road. A lot of people think of love as a theory. But in reality, love is concrete. Love is more than an emotion. Love is a way of life. And we see here, love in the social realm. And he applies it to different experiences of the human animal. Look here. Let brotherly love continue. If brotherly love, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. 
and play words, be kind to your brother. The, the golden rule. Okay? Let that continue. And then verse 2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And when he's talking about this, he's talking in particular people in need. Lot, when he saw these men coming into Sodom, he knew that for them to stay on the street was dangerous. So what did he do? He took them in. Abraham, when he saw Jesus and the two angels walking along towards Sodom, he ran out and met them. He says, come on home for supper. Let me wash your feet. Let me uh, refresh you before you go on. How many times do we refresh others? Do we encourage others? You know, one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of hospitality. And one of the reasons why Sodom was destroyed because of its lack of hospitality. Scripture tells us that. And we and the church should be a hospitable place. That's the word hospital and hospitality come from the same root. It's meeting the needs of others and trying to encourage them. And you know, you may actually entertain angels and not know it. Because angels can take on human form. I can tell you some stories about that. Where there were people who were there one minute and then they were gone.
we choose to turn away from that which we know is right. Remember them that are in bonds, those that are in jail. You know, you might send them a card. You might go visit or something. Or if they get out, you know, you might help them to try and get on their feet. But you need to be careful of it. You need to be careful. It takes a certain people to, to really be able to minister to their needs without being conned into things. And it says, but remember that in bonds as bound with them. Those who may be bound with an illness, they may be sick and shut in. I think of the old people. I know in the good old days when we used to go in gathering. We didn't have any trouble getting into the homes of some of these elderly people. But boy, we had a hard time getting out of those homes. They'd show us every picture in the house, tell us about every grandkid they had. They would tell us every adventure they had in life. Why? Because they were so lonely. They get so few visitors that they cling to them when they do come. What about the older people? Those who have suffered loss. What about going to them and just encouraging them and speaking encouraging words? They're bound by their circumstances, and we need to reach out to them. And then would suffer adversity. Those who have had setbacks, being uh, as being yourself also in the body. In plain words, those who are sick. If we're sick, we may need some help. Maybe they need help cleaning the house or going to the doctor or something like that. Maybe we can help. Look at verse uh, 13:4. Now notice, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed of defiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Oh, he's going to meddling here. He says that marriage is honorable. Huh. Doesn't that strike at the teaching of compulsory or forced celibacy? By the way, there is a gift of celibacy. A lot of talks about it. There are some people who enjoy being single, and it's not a problem for them. But when somebody says, you can't marry, and some teach some uh, churches teach that. Or that marriage is a sin. That's not what this is supporting. It says marriage is honorable to everybody in all things. But adultery isn't. The bed undefiled. Whoremongers. Chasing after people that you shouldn't be chasing after. Adulterers. And by the way, adultery and idolatry are interchangeable terms. You have to covet a person before you commit adultery. You have to place them above God, which is idolatry and God's will. He says, God will judge them. He'll take care of them. The main thing is we need to ask ourselves, what are our hearts? What are our motives? Because if a person looks upon another person lustfully, whether he's committed the act or not, he's committed it in his mind, you see. So he's telling us that we have to have an attitude of adjustment. And we have to have an attitude of gratitude toward God for what he's done. He, God wants us not to be seventh-day Adventists. 
He wants us to be seven days Adventists. He wants us to be Adventists every day. Knowing that the Lord is coming. And we need to be ready for it. And a person's attitude will reflect a lot. Unfortunately, I've run across people who are sad ministers. They're not very pleasant to be around. A sad Adventist. God wants us to be an Adventist. And that should bring us joy. And because it brings us joy, maybe we start radiating. And maybe we'll start radiating it to others. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And plain words, what, what you're talking about. Now the word conversation, we used to think of it as talking back and forth with one another. But the word conversation in its original meaning, it means more than that. It can mean your thoughts. Your thoughts. You're conversing in your mind. And it says, let our conversation be without covetousness. We may be doing things from a selfish pur uh, purpose. And be content with such things that you have. I think this is part of the problem we're facing today. You know, uh, Dan is very wealthy. He's got a million dollars, and I don't. I you know I don't have ten bucks to my name, and I really think Dan that you need to give me some of your money. <laughs> because you're too wealthy, you're selfish, you're covetous. I'm not covetous because I'm too poor to be covetous. I get covetous your money. You see? Sorry, Ray. I'm not going any place. Okay. <laughs> and it says, be content with what you've got. And plan was live within your income, but it means even more than that. You may say, oh, how did I ever get married to this woman? Oh, the grass is so much greener over there. It says, stay at home. Keep to your own house. And stop chasing after other people. It means more than that. It means... Just because your neighbor got a new car doesn't mean you need to get a new car. You know the Joneses? Some people believe in keeping up with the Joneses, but what they don't tell you is that the Joneses are mortgaged up to the hilt. God says, be content with what you have. And if you need more, lay it before him, and he will give you what you need. And then it says this, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. David talks about that. He said, I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the children of God making food. God may not give you the cake. He may not give you the fancy dishes, but he'll give you the bread and the water that you need. God provides for our needs, not always for our wants. Sometimes he lets us have some of our wants, too. But we need to know the difference between what a true need is and what a perceived need is. In plain words, we need to get our priorities in order. And consider what is important. I, the last words I spoke to my mother and father when they were on their deathbeds, and I do this, as a matter of fact, Dan, when uh, I went over to see this lady who just recently died, um, one of the things, one of the last things I said to her was, remember that Jesus promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
I will be with you to the very end. Trust me. I will provide for your needs. And if you trust me, I will bring you up again to a better place, to a better kingdom. This is trusting in the Lord that he is sufficient to meet our needs. Verse 6. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You and God are a majority. I don't care how many people are out there that are against you. You know, everybody's doing this and you're doing that. The world can't be, all these people can't be wrong and you have a monopoly on being right. Well, apparently remember that the remnant is a very small group. In the time of Noah, it was eight people out of all those zillions of people that may have been. In the last days, there may be zillions of people going in the wrong direction and taking the mark of the beast. But are we going to be among those who are going in the right direction? And so he gives us practical uh, counsel here. In verse 7 he says, Remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. In plain words, as people counsel us about the will of God, as we hear the the promises of God spoken, and we look and we see what God has in mind for us, we should be willing to submit to them. And when it says rule over you, it doesn't mean as a dictator. It means those who encourage you. You know, the pastors are there, hopefully, to encourage you toward the kingdom. And therefore, we should be willing to submit to their counsel. Now, sometimes I make mistakes. I got news for you. Pastors are human too. Mm-hmm. And they do make mistakes now and then. But if they are true in their heart and to their responsibility, they are looking for our best good. And God says that as we speak faithfully the word of God, He will help even mistakes to turn out right. If you don't make mistakes, you're not human. Otherwise, you don't need to say, you're already got it made. Look at 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If his commandments were good yesterday, they're good today, they'll be good tomorrow. There are those who want to redefine the Ten Commandments and what modern morality should be. Modern morality is immorality if it does not coincide with what God did yesterday and today and tomorrow. And so we find that God is giving us concrete counsel. He's telling these people who are ready to quit. They're ready to go into the world. They may give up even Judaism and the temple and go into the world. And he's saying, hey, look. There's an ethical code that God expects of you if you are going to be his representatives. Look at verse 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. You know, I've worked for our denomination full time for 49 years. And after my retirement, I hope I'm still working for the Lord, even though I don't get a paycheck for it. But the thing is, I've seen a lot of strange teachings come and go. People have come up with 
really interesting concepts and ideas, and I see people go trundling off after them, chasing about with every strange teaching that comes along. My friends, be careful you don't follow David Koresh or Jim Jones or somebody else. Test it against the Word of God. It's solid. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats. That means foods. It doesn't necessarily mean flesh food. It means any kind of foods. Um, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We're not saved by gastronomics. We are saved by the grace of God. Okay? Amen. Let's look at Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. There are some things I can do anything I want. I have freedom of choice. I can rob, I can steal, I can commit adultery, I can I can uh, worship other gods if I want to. That's the point, if I want to. But, if I accept the altar of God, I can't do those things. I won't do those things if the power of God is in my heart, if the Holy Spirit is in my life. And there are things that we don't do, we have no right to do, if we're going to serve at the altar of the temple and the tabernacle. There are those who say, it's all right to eat little piggies. I mean, I can eat little piggy if I want to. I can be a real pig and eat the pig. You know, the old saying, you are what you eat. Right. Better be careful. Mm -hmm. You know, you might get an insatiable type of garbage. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful because if we are of the temple of God, he says that there won't be anybody who eats the mouse or the pig who will be in there. So what does that mean? It means maybe we need to change some appetites too. And so we find that there are many applications you can make of that text. Look at 13, I mean 13, 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He died on the cross outside of the outside of the tabernacle, so that he could sanctify the people. The word sanctify and sanctuary come from the same root. To make that dedicated or holy or set aside, set apart. We are to be a set apart people. And it is God who sanctifies us. It's the truth that sanctifies us. It's the word purpose of the word of God to sanctify us or set us aside for a holy purpose. Look at 1313. Let us go there, uh, forth, therefore. Here's another therefore. So he's connecting all these thoughts. Let us go forth, therefore, unto, unto him, excuse me, without the camp, bearing his reproach. Let us go forth in the power of his sacrifice, that we may honor his name. Look at 1314. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We're just pilgrims passing through this earth. This is not our home. You know what? You may have a big, beautiful house. You know what? It's going to burn. You may have a large bank account. You know what? It's going to burn. You may have a nice, big, fancy car. 
for our benefit. If we cooperate with them, I don't think you'll be arrested for doing what's right. And we need to be careful of that. And then we move into Colossians, I mean Colossians, into the conclusion, which is Hebrews 13, 18-25. And as we look at the conclusion, Paul's about to wrap it up now. He's told them everything he can tell them. He's counseled them about social living, ethical social living. And now he says, he asks for personal prayer. Pray for us, for we trust that we have a good conscience. We trust that the counsel we've given you is correct. In all things, willing to live honestly. 19. But I beseech you, but rather to do this, that I may be restored to you soon. Please pray that I'll get out of jail and be able to come to see you. That was what Paul was hoping for. Not only for himself, but he wanted to bring somebody else with him too. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you. Now notice that word, in you. I said there's a difference between Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our Lord. He's talking about Jesus as the Lord. Working in you. That which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The word forever and ever, it means as long as life shall last. And, of course, these people have lived forever, so that's a long forever, okay? And uh, when it says the wicked will burn forever, they'll burn till they're gone. That's the end of their forever. And then he says, amen. Notice the word amen means, it simply means, so may it be. So may it be established. It's actually a prayer. The Jews would say, amen. Instead of amen, they would say, amen which is the same thing. It's asking a blessing of fire. Then verse 22. Now he puts in a few personal notes. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the words of exhortation. And in words, listen to the counsel given to you. The stuff that I've just written to you, listen to it. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. Well, 13 chapters is quite a few words. But he's He's getting across some important truths. Look at verse 23. He talks about Timothy. Now, this is another reason why we think it's probably Paul who wrote this book. Although he doesn't give his name. Because it's unlikely that Aquila and Priscilla wrote it. Because they didn't have that kind of relationship with Timothy. It's doubtful that, um, who's the other guy that from Alexandria? The other apostle that was walking around there that Paul talks about. Anyway, there are some who tried to say he wrote it, but he didn't have a relationship with Timothy. Neither Luke had the relationship with Timothy that Paul had. But notice, he said, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. In plain words, he just got out of jail. With whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. In plain words, if Timothy comes together, we'll come to see you. So Paul 
apparently had great expectations of being free to go back and visit these people. Now, where these people were is debated. But he gives a hint as to where he is, but he's writing it. He says, soon look all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. So apparently, if this is Paul, he's in Italy, but he's not yet heading to the chopping block. He still is enough at liberty that he's hoping with Timothy to be able to visit these people or at least interact with them. So these may have been the Jews, the Hebrews who were in, in Italy that he's addressing this letter to, as opposed to those that have been in Palestine. Or it could have been the Jews all over the world he was addressing it to. So it appears that he wrote this from Italy. And then, like chapter 12, he said, remember at the end of chapter 12, one short sentence that our God will consume power to the wicked. Now he ends this with one simple sentence. Grace be with you all. He leaves it as a lesson of grace. The book of Hebrews is a book about the grace of God. And he ends it with Amen, which means so may be established. And so, my friends, as we look at chapter 12 and 13, it summarizes the message of faith to a people tempted to return to the obsolete sacrificial system. Chapter 13 completes the book of Hebrews. Paul encourages the Hebrews to be faithful even under persecution, as did the saints of old. And he gave examples of the Lord's He also leaves them with the words of advice on social living and conduct. And he updates them on his plans to see them again with Timothy. And thus we come to the conclusion of the book. And before we say goodnight, let's have a word for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for this powerful and uh, necessary book of Hebrews that connects the Old Testament with the New Testament and tells us the times in which we live and the type of people we need to be. Even in discouraging times, even in times when we feel like quitting and giving up, what a wonderful promise we have before us. What a wonderful Savior we have who made it possible. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit. May he remain in us and help us to be the kind of people that you would be pleased to have in your kingdom. Until then, bless us, keep us in Jesus. We pray in his name.